University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Under orders from the Secretary of Defense, women can now try out for all combat jobs in all services. We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation. Don't ask, don't tell is history, but there's still plenty to talk about. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pareto. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. Today, we're excited to bring you an interview we recorded last week with former Republican Congressman Tom Rooney. Congressman Rooney represented Florida's 16th Congressional District from 2009 to 2013, and he represented the 17th District from 2013 to 2019. During his time in Congress, he was on the House Intelligence Committee, the House Armed Services Committee, and the Committee on Agriculture. He decided not to pursue re-election in 2018, and he is now a fellow here at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Prior to his political career, Congressman Rooney and his wife both served in the U.S. Army as judge advocates, military lawyers. He worked as a prosecutor at Fort Hood, Texas, and then taught constitutional and criminal law at West Point. We spoke with Congressman Rooney about his time in the Army, his experience serving as a member of Congress, and the reasons for having a military justice system separate from the civilian legal system. And, in light of his background as a former JAG and a Republican politician, we wanted to get his take on the President's recent decisions to pardon convicted or alleged war criminals. What are the implications for the military justice system and for the state of our country's politics? Another thing we'll note, We had some technical difficulties during this recording, so our sound quality is a little bit different than normal. Thanks for your patience. Here's the interview. Congressman Tom Rooney, thank you for joining us on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. So you've spent your time in Congress, but before that, you were in the Army. You served as a JAG, as an Army lawyer. What led to your decision to wanting to join the Army and serve as a lawyer there? Well, it wasn't sort of in my you know, in the cards of what I was thinking of doing at at that point in my life. I was in law school uh, at the University of Miami, and I was probably 27 or 28 years old when an Army recruiter came on campus. And um, I don't know why I went. You know, I didn't think that that was a possibility, but I don't know. Maybe I didn't have that many options at that point. So I was just thinking of going to the state attorney's office back in my home county. And he just made this uh, really good pitch, as he should, being a recruiter, that if I went into uh, the state attorney's office, I would be doing DWIs and small stuff for years and years and years. And uh, if I came into the Army, that I could potentially do like a murder case in my first or second year. So um, we weren't at war or anything like that. So it was just sort of at that point, it was kind of like a, a career move that I thought would be. Uh, exciting. And, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, although I had a new girlfriend. And we started getting very serious. And uh, she's like, so what do you think about joining the Army? <laughs> and, you know, she wanted to be a real estate attorney on South Beach, which is totally different than being in the military. But somehow I convinced her to uh, sign up with me. And you know, we passed the bar, went on our honeymoon, got married, went on our honeymoon. And then uh, not too long after that, we we're in 
formation at 0530 uh, Fort Lee, Virginia. Yeah, I remember just like looking at her and the sun hasn't even come up yet. It's freezing cold. It's just like, it feels so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, wearing a uniform and she's like, you know, at attention. But no, she was, she was an incredible uh, soldier, officer, great attorney. It actually fit her personality very well to uh, help soldiers and that, that's basically how it happened. I mean, there isn't anything, you know, bigger than that, other than the fact that, you know, I was named after a guy named uh, Tommy Rooney, my dad's uncle, who was the youngest of his uncles, and he was killed on Guam in World War II, and he was in the Marine Corps, and I think he was 19, and so it, I always knew, it was never lost on me, who I was named after. My dad, I think I was the only child, he is, we have brothers and sisters and my mom named all of them except me and I was named after him so you know I have a son Tommy now and I always make sure that he understands who he was named after so um, that that sort of was in there too that you know uh, I would be following in that legacy a, a little bit I mean he was a Marine Corps in World War II which is a little different than being in the JAG Corps in peacetime but so a sense of service and a chance to get some really great experience yeah. in the courtroom, but really you could bring your girlfriend to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's interesting because when we were um, picking our duty stations as a married couple, we had to pick a place that was big enough that we would never see each other in court mm. for obvious mm. you know, mm-hmm. conflict reasons. So I think um, Fort Bragg was an option and I wasn't really you know wanting to jump out of airplanes at that point. Europe and then like Fort Hood because it's so big that there's multiple divisions. So I could be in first cab, which I was, and she was at three corps. You know, I loved Fort Hood. Um, our son was born there. We used to go down to Austin all the time to listen to music and stuff. But in, in retrospect, maybe we should have gone to Europe just to get more, like, you know, horses and stuff in. But I, I, I really, really liked it. And then after Fort Hood, you served as an instructor at West Point. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the JAG Corps, as a direct commissionee, which we were, um, your obligation is three years and then five years on inactive reserve status. So I thought we would do our three years. I would go home and I, you know, have, have this on my resume. You know, 9-11 happened uh, five days after our first son was born. And Fort Hood, you know, obviously, is where all installations went on lockdown and everything just sort of changed. So my thoughts of getting a job, having this great resume, and also being able to serve in the Army during peacetime completely flipped on its head to where now it was much more a sense of service and much more a sense of, you know, I'm part of I'm part of the military. And um, so I had I had, you know, a chance to re-up one of my one of my best friends who actually went on to be a congressman too as a Democrat. Um, was, was an instructor up at West Point and he called me and he said, Hey, are you getting out of the army? And I'm like, I think we're going to get out. I mean, you know, our time's coming up and, and he goes, well, what would, what would it take to keep you in? And I'm just like, well, there's a couple jobs out there that I'd be interested <laughs> in. And, um, he said, how about an instructor of law at West Point? And I'm like, that's one of them. So, um, so I re-upped and we moved to New York. You know, I got to having, having not gone to West Point to walk around there as a captain and have these cadets saluting you on the way to class was really amazing experience. And 
much like the students here at the University of Chicago. I mean, these kids were way smarter than I was, but but being able to work with them and interact with them on a daily basis was just a huge honor, incredible experience, getting to sort of learn about the Long Gray Line and that that, that all that history was, uh, was was awesome. And what led to your decision to eventually leave the Army? So my time at West Point, my obligation there was coming up. And like a lot of young officers um, at that sort of captain point, it, it's kind of like that seems to be the jump off point or you're staying for 20, you know. So I was pushing five years and then I did actually really want to make major. I mean, for some reason, that stuck in my mind as sort of being a really cool thing to achieve. Um, but, you know, I think my I think my wife wanted to go home and, you know, we had the two little kids at that point, and I just, I don't know. I, I think it was one of those things where it was going to be, if I re-up again, I'm going to be in for 20. If I get out now, I'm not going to be so old that I'm competing against other lawyers that are getting out of law school that are freshly out of law school, and I'm like this 32-year-old guy, and I'm trying to compete with them. I, di- I didn't feel like I was that old at that point that I that I could. Plus, I'd you know, be able to compete because of, serving in the army and hopefully that was a plus, which it was. But I gotta be honest with you, a lot of my friends that were in the JAG Corps that I was in their basic class are now making Holberg colonel and I'm extremely jealous and I I still don't feel that old and just to think that they're Holbergs right now is really impressive and I have a lot of envy about that, you know. So if I would have chose to stay in, it would have been great too. So you left your tour at West Point. I believe you worked a couple of years in the private sector and then decided to get into politics. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I was in the attorney general's office initially, and then I went to a private firm in, in, in the middle there. I was working as a CEO of an orphanage in Palm Beach County that I was on the board of. And I don't know how that happened, but it was a very interesting, and rewarding job. Then I went to private practice and, uh, our congressman got into a little bit of trouble. And so it was kind of, you know, one of those things where my kids were really young and, you know, I'd always had a little bit of a political bug. My first job out of college was working in the mailroom of our senator in Washington. So I definitely always had a little bit of a political bug and I didn't know if it would ever be used, but it was kind of a carpe diem moment, to be honest with you. This guy got in trouble. He had to leave Congress. It was a Republican seat. I'm a Republican. And a Democrat beat the fill-in name, the fill-in candidate who had to actually run under the old guy's name, which, because ballots were already printed. So he lost, of course. And then um, he decided that he wasn't going to run again in two years. So it was completely wide open. So I'm just like, the hell with it. I mean, you know. The worst that can happen is I run for Congress and lose, and I'm good with that. You know, I can sort of tell my kids when they grow up, hey, your dad ran for Congress once upon a time, got <laughs> slack, but, you know, um, but yeah, we end up winning. <laughs> so do you think your status as an Army veteran played into your campaign and your eventual election? Absolutely. And, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy about people that wear that stuff on their sleeve, literally. Um, because first of all, as a JAG, I always thought it was against the rules. You know, you're not supposed to use your military status, um, in that way. There's, there's gray areas. Like you can use it for historical purposes. Like on my trifold, uh, little campaign thing, 
you know, there was a picture of me and my wife in uniform in the back is almost like a resume thing. Like, Hey, this is some of the things that I did in my life. But the picture on the front was me standing in front of a tractor. Um, cause our district was very agricultural, but, um, you know, I've always been very wary of, of, you know, like the, the campaign pictures that are like in uniform, like, Hey, vote for me. And you're voting for the army. You're not supposed to do that. So, you know, when, when, when we decided to run, um, obviously it was after nine 11, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan were heating up. So being on the campaign trail and being 35 or six, I think at that point, running against two older states people, um, who, you know, were secretly whispering to everybody that Rudy's too young and inexperienced, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people were talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. And I sort of focused in on that as my issue to talk about in the campaign rules of engagement, you know, just w- what was going on and why aren't you running for the state house instead of Congress? And I said, well, because, you know, my background is in the military, which is dealt at the federal level. It, you know, the state house deals with education and other important things that, you know, I'm probably not the most qualified for. So, it absolutely did help me um, in, in, in many ways, like the way that I ran my campaign, the way that, you know, I tried to keep things in a certain order and um, that kind of thing. So shifting gears uh, back to your time as a JAG, many Americans' perceptions or understandings of the JAG Corps, of Judge Advocate Generals, uh, comes from things they see on screen, like the short-lived CBS series The Code, or the TV show JAG, of course, A Few Good Men. What did your day-to-day job as a JAG really look like? How much did it line up with the glorified life of Tom Cruise? <laughs> well, I got to be honest with you. I, I saw A Few Good Men not too not too long before I decided to join the JAG course, so it didn't hurt. But, you know, there's differences. Like, in the Army, you're assigned, uh, uh, you know, you're attached to a unit, and Usually you start off doing legal assistance, which is whatever walks in the room with soldiers, you know, could be landlord tenant. I bought a sorry, I bought a car and I can't afford it. <laughs> or, you know, my wife's leaving me, I need a divorce, you know, they do everything. Uh, and then and then you'll go into being a prosecutor for the commander of your unit. Um, and and then usually after that you go into being a defense attorney, which is kind of affiliated with nobody, you're kind of autonomous, which is what they want. And then you can be a judge or, you know, a staff judge advocate at like a division or something like that. In the Navy, like in um, A Few Good Men, from what I understand, and if there's Navy Jags out there, I apologize if I'm screwing this up, but my brother was in the Marine Corps as a judge advocate. And on any given issue, you could be either prosecutor or defense. So like this one case, he could be with the government. Next case, he could be with you know, you know, helping defend somebody that's been accused. So, again, I'm not sure if that's the way that it works, but those movies, that that movie and um, the show Jag was, uh, th- there was definitely some things that were true, and th- there are definitely some things that were accurate. There were definitely some things that were Hollywood, but the, the fact that Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men was getting assigned to that murder case you know, and the reason why that was pretty sensational. I don't know that they would ever give that kind of a case to somebody that junior, um, but um, it's possible. And, you know, certainly in my first year, when I was, or my first year as a prosecutor, we had a case which was a unfortunate, an unfortunate incident where a mother was being 
accused of recklessness where her daughter fell off the back of the car and hit her head and died. There was no intention there whatsoever. And But, I mean, this is one of my first cases that I was affiliated with. And so, yeah, that was true. But, yeah, my mom loves the show Jag. And uh, I've never seen the other one you said, The Code. The Code. It was, on CB- it was only last <laughs> season, not well-received. Okay. A lot of veterans had issues with the Marine uniforms because they were way off, the haircuts were off. Yeah, it's it always sort of drives me crazy when they have these shows and they can't do the simple things like that or just salute. I mean, like, how hard is it to teach somebody to salute, like, not horribly? I mean, you certainly there's a bunch of different salutes. You have, you know, different personalities. But, um, you know, I watched this show, um, The Seal Seal Team, the one with David Boreanaz. I think that's really good. But they do little things like that where they get it right, where they... um, Another great one was uh, Band of Brothers on HBO mm-hmm. back in the mm-hmm. day. And, mm-hmm. you know, that one was probably the most accurate with regard to, I think, how officers and enlisted guys get along or interact with each other. That was the most authentic military show I've ever seen. We were wondering if you could take us sort of step by step through how a criminal case unfolds under the UCMJ, the Uniform yeah. Code of Military Justice, and how that's different from how a case goes in the civilian justice right. system. Well, the biggest the biggest factor is the commander, is the commanding officer or the convening authority. Um, the ability to move a case forward and also seal a case once it's finished begins and ends with the commander, where in the civilian world, obviously, that doesn't happen. We have, in the civilian world, you, you know, you'd have an allegation or a complaint, and then you'd have... Uh, you know, grand jury potentially to see if you have enough evidence to move forward. And then, you know, the person would be arraigned and, and charged. Um, and then once sentencing comes down, that's usually it, unless there's an appeal based on the law that goes up through the court system. In, in, in the military justice system, obviously, we have not only the criminal aspects of uh, UCMJ, but also the non-judicial punishment stuff like Article 15s, which are spearheaded, you know, by potentially a commanding officer, along with the advice and consent of his judge advocate. That's what the JAG's there for, is to advise, uh, advise the commander. There's a lot of things that they can do in the military that wouldn't be crimes, obviously, in the civilian world. That, you know, you're not taking somebody's liberty away and putting them in jail, but you're making them do, like, extra duty or you know, confined to barracks or whatever, whatever, you know, Article 15 punishment the commander wants to do. So in that respect, it's almost like the commander is this sort of super judicial being on, on above everything. So like, you know, the, the biggest thing that I can say is when they prefer charges and they go forward with the case and then there's a court martial and then there's a sentencing, the commanding officer has to sign off on that sentencing. Now, if, you know, there is some protections there that, like, if somebody is found, you know, not guilty, the commanding officer has to live with that. But if it, if they're found guilty and the punishment is a certain level and the commanding officer doesn't like it, that it can be amended. So those are things that are sort of unique to the, to the criminal justice system or to the military justice system as opposed to the criminal justice system. I think that it's extremely fair. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of things where if you talk to judge advocates that know what they're doing would say that there's actually more protections in a court martial system than there is in civilian court as far as 
you know, rights of a defendant and making sure that we get what we're doing right. Yeah, there's, I guess there's a lot of people that allege that that presence of the commander, um, gives a lot of opportunity for intervention and bias in a case, um, sort of like well, railroading people. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Unlawful command influence is the biggest obstacle that we have in the military. And we're in the JAG school in Charlottesville. Unlawful command influence is a huge topic that, um, a commanding officer, even though they're an integral part of wheel that's moving the UCMJ forward, that, that, that they have to be careful that it doesn't cross over into the line of them basically having a role in guilt or innocence or prejudicing the process in any way, shape, or form. So, and I think commanding officers have gotten a lot better at being careful not to do anything that's, you know, going to come back and hurt them or haunt them later. Um, i when I was in Congress, I used to probably see more than my fair share of military officers or commanders that would come see me being like, hey, uh, you know, I was supposed to get promoted and I'm like not on the list because I think of this thing that, you know, was alleged that there was unlawful command influence in this case or something like that. And this is the opposite of being, you know, intervening. This is like his superiors being worrying about that he exerted too much influence or so there was definitely a sense especially when i was in congress that people were being ultra careful about what they were doing how things were being perceived to the civilian world that, that you know the military justice system wasn't just a bunch of yahoos going out there and and um throwing people in jail just because they didn't think that they were good soldiers sort of like the nathan jessup standard <laughs> but um even though, you know, a lot of people in this country love what he said on the stand. And, and, um, and then you sort of, you know, in a way, there's these pardons that happened recently that, you know, some people agree with. So on that note of presidential pardons, we're seeing this a lot in the news lately uh, with the case of First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who ordered his men to shoot unarmed Afghan motorcyclists. Ultimately, he was convicted on the testimony of nine members of his platoon, we also have the case of Army Major Matt Goldstein, who ambushed an unarmed Afghan civilian who was allegedly a Taliban bomb maker. Initially, he said that another soldier in his platoon did it, but then in a Fox News interview, he said that he was the one who did it. So the Army was set to review the case this December, but the president put a block on that. And then we have the case of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who was acquitted of murdering an ISIS detainee who was receiving medical attention, but was convicted of posing for a photo with the dead body. So you have the president pardoning these alleged war criminals or at least getting involved in the military justice process. Uh, Trump tweeted recently that we train our boys to be killing machines then prosecute them when they kill. And that echoes a sentiment he also expressed in 2016 when he said that you have to play the game the way they're playing the game, the way that our enemies are playing the game. I'm curious, what do you think of the president's line of thinking? Do you yeah, agree with it? No, especially that last part. We, we, we follow the rules of engagement and we live by a set standard based on, you know, whether it be either convention standards or historic laws of war. Uh, we don't fight 
in violation of those things because we're the United States of America. One of the hardest things about fighting the global war on terror is that unlike traditional warfare where you have two sides lining up against each other, both wearing their respective uniforms, holding their flag of their side, where you can see a discernible enemy across a battlefield, uh, we don't have that anymore. We wear the uniform and the other side generally doesn't. The other side generally ebbs and flows in and out of sort of like, you know, civilian status versus combatant status. And it's hard, really hard to determine who they are and whether or not they're a threat, those type of things. So uh, in, in that regard, the enemy that our fighting men and women are facing today is the hardest enemy to see, literally, I think, you know, in any time in military combat. And they use that to their advantage. They know that we're going to fight by the rules and they're using the fact that we fight by the rules against us. But to say in any way that we need to start fighting dirty too, I think goes against who we are as Americans and why we're respected the world over and why we have such reverence for our war fighters. Now, with these three cases, let, let me let me say this. I think it is completely appropriate for the commander in chief to pardon or commute sentences if he thinks that there was some kind of unfair action or something, or even if it, it, even if he feels, for whatever reason, it's it's wholly within his prerogative to do what he has done. What I didn't like, and some of my colleagues had used. Uh, some of this language over the last few years with some of these, in, in relation to some of these cases, without going too much into the specifics of the cases, people started talking about the JAG Corps in, in the military as sort of the bad guy, and that the military justice system was somehow tainted or corrupt or uh, overzealous because we just feel like doing that. That is completely not true. The people that I served within the JAG Corps were Democrats, they were Republicans, they were liberals, they were conservatives, but they all had a job to do. Now, don't get me wrong. There was some one or two or three or four, however many you meet in any kind of occupation where you're like, that guy's a jerk. I would never want him as my attorney or I would never want him, you know, working on behalf of the government because I don't trust him. You'll get that in any job. But by and large, the people that were in the JAG Corps were good, honest, hardworking lawyers trying to represent soldiers or represent victims and the government and uphold a certain standard that we should all be proud of. At some point, it became cliche to start saying that the JAG Corps and the military justice system was, you know, corrupt. And I'm trying to think of a better word than corrupt, but... That's sort of how I took it. And I'm just like, really? Are, are we really starting to, like, you know, use the whole... And this is what politics has become in, in large part. It's like, if you don't say, say something, blow the whole system up, you know? And so bad-mouthing the, the military justice system became in vogue recently with members of Congress, friends of mine, and it drove me crazy. But in these three cases specifically, I think that I, I, I understand I understand both sides. I understand that, you know, we have to engage enemy combatants as we take them. And sometimes it's hard for, like, the lieutenant to discern whether or not that guy is a lawful enemy combatant. 
the time he's on the motorcycle and maybe not engaged at that point, but knowing that he historically has been engaged, is he a lawful target? In, in, in historical terms, would he be somebody that, you know, could have been fired upon in World War II or the Civil War or whatever you want to, you know, use and versus what the standards were then? And um, a lot of that is determined by the commander in chief and the Congress when you're talking about rules of engagement. Uh, the rules of engagement, I think, under President Obama were a little tougher for soldiers to operate under. Um, but we were trying to maybe take a higher, have a higher standard of responsibility or, or what have you. I think they've been relaxed a little bit. I'm not going to get into the debate of what's better, but I understand. I, I can see what happened and I can see why that there was testimony for and against this lieutenant. I can also see his parents thinking that, you know, he was over there in a foreign country in a really hot situation. He saw a bad guy and he had him taken out. Uh, whether or not that situation is right or wrong or what the standard should be is really, really hard for me to defend or prosecute. You know, I know I'm sounding like a politician right now taking both sides, but, you know, <laughs> you know, on paper, he wasn't he wasn't a combatant at that time. And so, you know, by by rule, maybe the conviction was right. But if he was my son. And, you know, I can also see the other side of like, yeah, light that guy up, you know, so it's really hard and it's hard because they make it hard by, by acting that way. And I can see the frustration, like, why should we have to play by the rules when they don't, which is what the president was tweeting. With regard to the seal uh, posing in front of the, he's not allowed to do that. That's against, that's against the UCMJ and it's against the wall. So he shouldn't have done that. He should have known he shouldn't have done that. I know that there is definitely a different standard with kind of, I, I've been reading about this case and, you know, you're sort of seeing this different standard between older seals and younger seals and what they think is acceptable. And so, you know, that was just dumb. And then with, the, with regard to the, the bomb maker guy, again, you know, going on Fox News and admitting to something years later. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. I think. There's a reason why in the civilian world we have statute of limitations because evidence goes away, witnesses go away. If the government can't bring a case, and, and I think that they, during their initial investigation, found that what he did was okay. To, to come back all these years later because of a statement that he made on Fox News, which was stupid for him to do, you know, was just some kind of over, I, I think could have potentially been looked at as some overzealous prosecutor. Like, well, he just admitted, so now we're going to go. I think they even went to like, Afghanistan and tried to find some Taliban to testify against this guy like a decade later. So that one was kind of ridiculous uh, in that regard, just because it would be too hard to actually prosecute, I think, that case. So um, I have no problem with the pardons. I have a huge problem with what he tweeted about, like, you know, let's sink to their level. That's that is not presidential and that is not who we are as I think a country and a military, but it's easy for him to say stuff like that because a lot of people on the countryside like, yeah, through them, let's, you know, let's get down on their level. But we don't do that. We follow the Geneva conventions. We follow the laws of war. You know, we're the United States of America. We hold ourselves to a higher standard for our reason. And uh, if the president or any president wants to pardon some of these guys that the UCMJ has convicted, that's completely up to him. He can do it. And he can create some outrage out there for people to talk about in the newspaper. But again, I'll just say, you know, one last time, 
the, the enemy that we're fighting right now is probably the most frustrating enemy um, that, that we've ever seen. So the kind of fog of war with these guys, especially that first lieutenant, um, is is hard. It's it's hard to get like two plus two equals four. Yeah, I think the case with first lieutenant Lawrence is it can be pretty murky, but with Eddie Gallagher, it seems much more clear cut, right? He did pose in front of the dead body that is against the UCMJ. Yeah. He was convicted. He was demoted in rank. Right. But then the president overturned that decision. And while he does certainly have the constitutional authority to do that, yeah. do you think it was a good move with regard to military order and discipline or military justice? That one, that one with regard to good order and discipline is probably the hardest one to defend just because the president had also just muted the sentence and just said, okay, nothing else is going to happen here. But, you know, when you pardon somebody, you're basically wiping it clean, saying nothing happened here. And so when you're saying, and, and again, I don't know where he was at with regard to years in service, and maybe he was just about ready to retire. So it would be like to bust him down in rank or, you know, that he wouldn't have gotten his retirement or something. Maybe that was what the president was thinking. But the message, as you allude to, the message that it potentially sends to other people in similar situations out there is that if I do this, is the message getting to the soldiers that if I pose with a dead body or take a trophy, so to speak, that I'm going to be exonerated because, you know, the president pardons people like that or not? And so, you know, that's up to command leadership and, you know, filtering down through the ranks that, you know, you're not going to do that. Or I'm sure, I'm sure because it's illegal, nobody wants to go through a court martial's process just because the president pardoned this one guy. So. Shifting gears again, um, one of the topics that we've talked a lot about on this podcast has been congressional oversight of the military, and specifically um, whether Congress has ceded too much of its war powers to the president. Um, We have some that argue that, you know, the president needs to have this broad executive authority in order to keep our nation safe in a changing, complex global environment. We have others who argue um, that it's a travesty that the AUMF has not been renegotiated in 18 years. Um, we were wondering where you stand on that. I, I've, I've evolved on this one a little bit. I actually testified as a member of Congress before a congressional uh, committee, uh, along with Justin Amash. It was probably the only time him and I sat at the same table together talking <laughs> the same language. But, um, you know, I, I was really concerned my whole time in Congress that, um, we, the legislative branch had been giving up way too much of its power to the executive. Um, you know, the founding fathers made uh, the legislative branch Article One for a reason, and we are the re- the reason being that we're closest to the people. We're accountable every two years. We represent um, the people, and we have to listen to the hear from them uh, on a regular basis and, and, and accountable to them most frequently. So. I think that that's why the founding fathers did things like specifically enumerate Article One, Section Eight, the powers of the legislative branch, um, and you know, with regard to the president as commander in chief under Article Two, you know, he is commander in chief. There are situations I I get that, especially in a more modern world, there might have something happen in the middle of the night somewhere in some reaching country where he has to send the Marines in right now and he can't assemble 
435 members of Congress to try to get approval for doing it because it might be some small operations. I get that. Um, so we set up, you know, war powers, which would allow for a certain amount of days to come to Congress and get approval, a certain amount of days for him to bring them back if he doesn't get approval. And even that is now sort of ignored. And the courts won't weigh in on it because they say it's a political question, which I don't know what that means. I'm a lawyer. I've studied the courts and the Constitution. You could basically say that for anything. Now, this this is a political question between you two guys. Figure it out. Like, okay, well, we can't figure it out. It's a fight over, like, who gets to say what. But um, I think, I, I, and, you know, I've had discussions with, you know, one of my best friends in Congress, a guy named Adam Kinzinger, who's all about the commander-in-chief side of this argument. And he's convinced me that, you know, we can't have 435 commanders in chief or else we'll just be handcuffed. <laughs> so we, we do have to have a point person internationally. We do have to have somebody that's in charge. Another issue in congressional oversight of the military, you sat on the Armed Services Committee, and one of the annual customs or responsibilities of that committee is to pass the National Defense Authorization Act, which funds and authorizes military programs for each fiscal year. And traditionally, the NDAA has passed on a very broad bipartisan basis. But this past year, 2019, um, the NDA passed in the House by a vote of 220 to 197, with not a single Republican voting for it. Um, we were wondering what you think about that. If it is a trend, it, is it important for the NDAA to pass on a broad bipartisan basis? Yeah, obviously. Having things like the NDAA become political football, where it's a party line vote, is you know, not a good thing. And obviously, members of the the Republican Party are in the minority now in the House, so whatever the markup, which was the drafting of the NDA, was in the Armed Services Committee, obviously there were some things that were in there that were um, not palatable towards the Republican side, but, you know, usually those things are ironed out so that, you know, the message we're sending to our men and women in uniform is that, you know, we appreciate you. We're going to fund you. We're going to give you the best equipment. You're going to have the best care and your families. And this isn't going to be a political issue. I'm not sure specifically what the problem was with our side of the aisle and what, why the NDA passed on a party line vote. But everything we do nowadays is on a party line vote, including the impeachment hearings that we're seeing right now. There's almost nothing that isn't us versus them and, um, you know, just when I started in Congress in 09 to now, and I talked about the Intelligence Committee before, the Armed Services Committee, those things that used to sort of be sacred, um, you know, are no longer sacred. And now everything is political. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's because, you know, social media or more TV, you know, it looks better on TV to sort of be us versus them. And I know a lot of it has to do with getting reelected and people using certain things on their campaign. Uh, against other people and, and not wanting to have some kind of blotch on their mark that they voted for an NDA that had something in there that was like, you know, anti-conservative or, or whatever. And so I'm sure that that's what happened. And um, fortunately, that's that's the way that we're moving. So And it's stupid also because they don't have the Senate. So there's got to be some, there's got to be some bipartisanship in any legislation that's coming out of the Democratic 
House right now because they got to go through a Republican Senate. So, and they have a Republican president. Um, when Obama was the president and we had the House and the Senate, I mean, we knew that certain things were going to get signed and certain things weren't. We could, you know, posture all we wanted about how conservative we were and we're getting this, that, and the other done. But not having 60 in the Senate, which hurts a lot, and having Obama as the president, you, you know, keeping government funded and the military funded and all that stuff is going to require compromise. Unless you have 60 in the Senate, the House, and the White House, you're not getting everything that you want. And I think that people nowadays think that, they, that we should hold firm until we can get whatever we want or anything that we want. And I think the one thing, you know, for Republicans out there that are listening need to realize Somebody, somebody told me like in the last hundred years, you know how many times the Republicans have had the House, the Senate, the White House, and 60 in the Senate? Never. Yeah. <laughs> We've never had that. So to, to, to think that that's a, a real possibility would, would mean like this huge Republican wave that I, you know, I just don't know, especially with gerrymandering in these state house, you know, that set up these congressional seats. You know, I just don't think it's ever possible. So. What's one piece of advice you could, if you could give one piece of advice to future policymakers about the military or about serving in Congress, what would it be? Um, I think that for, for me, if, if military service is part of what you want to do in your life and then, and then take that into an elected official role uh, in Congress, there's more and more members of Congress that are getting elected nowadays than, um, than prior uh, that have military service. And that's hugely important. Uh, just to be on the Armed Services Committee or on the Intelligence Committee or whatever, um, being able to weigh in on the realities of what it means to be uh, you know, a former member of the military, understand how the Pentagon works, or to be able to figure that out pretty easily. Um, there's, there's a big, I was always struck by other members of Congress, some of which were kind of like a big deal, that would come up to me and ask me a military question because they knew that, and the answer wasn't all that complicated, but just the, the fact that the reverence that they gave members of Congress that served in the military was, was great. And so if you're, if you're thinking about joining the military, if you have political aspirations, um, you know, those that those are two different types of service, but service nonetheless to your country. And, um, you know, I just I don't think that I would have ever run for Congress if I hadn't been in the army. I don't think that I would have been near as effective as a member of the legislative branch if I hadn't served in the army. And I, I certainly would have brought a lot less to the table, um, you know, so um, it's it's. It's definitely, it's definitely a great honor and a great privilege to be able to do both of those things. And you know, anybody out there that's listening that's sort of on that same track, you know, I think it's, to me, it was great. Well, Congressman Rooney, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and for serving as a fellow here at the Institute of Politics. Um, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced 
by Tom Lutantio, Bobby Maxwell, and Ashwarya Kumar. Our publisher is Haziano. Special thanks to Ashley Jorn and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Special thanks also to Thomas's Dell Inspiron 5000 series laptop, whose built-in microphone was accidentally used to record this entire interview. We record here at the Harris School of Public Policy. Thank You for Your Service is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and does not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time.